we're going to have our main Bible reading now. And we're picking up Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 22. You can follow in the church Bibles on, I think it's 583, page 583. I'm going to read Isaiah 22 uh, up to chapter 27. So Isaiah 22, starting at verse 1, and it says this. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labour to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls from the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for boldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here, and whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hold you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you, and whirl you round and round and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, your shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honour to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honour of his father's house. The offspring and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened 
in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. The Oracle Concerning Tyre Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbour. From the land of Cyprus it's revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast, the merchants of Sidon, who cross the sea, have filled you. And on many waters your revenue was the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the Nile. You were the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither laboured nor given birth. I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report of Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish, where are inhabitants of the coast? Is this your exultant city, whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honoured of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it, to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonour all the honoured of the earth. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint any more. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, You will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This is the people that was not... Assyria destined for its wild beasts. They erected their siege towers. They stripped her palaces bare. They made her a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is laid waste. In that day Tyre will be forgotten for seventy years like the days of one king. At the end of seventy years it will happen to Tyre, as in the song of the prostitute. Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of seventy years the Lord will visit Tyre, and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken his, this word. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. 
No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. For thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. As when the olive tree is beaten. As at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy. Over the majesty of the Lord they shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea give glory to the name of the Lord the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we hear songs of praise. Of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed, with betrayal the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the window of heaven are for the windows of heaven are open, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. Oh, that the day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. Sorry, on that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this, his salvation, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. 
but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nations that keep faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the heights, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgment, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. If favour is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness he deals corruptly, and he does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people, and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. You have done for us all our works. O Lord our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. To that end, you visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. For you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation you are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when, you dis when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman, who rise and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. So were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. In that day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. 
Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No asherim or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favour. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Well, do keep uh, that text open. We're going to be looking um, at that together in the next few minutes. Just to say there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet. Uh, so uh, do make use of that to make notes to steady your thinking. And at the end, um, there will be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments on what we've looked at uh, together. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and sovereign over your creation. And we pray please now, as we reflect on your word, would we be those who vindicate your character in our response to your word, that we would listen to it because it's truthful, we would trust it because it's good and we would obey your voice because you are sovereign over us. In Jesus' name, Amen. The chapters that we've just read together can seem very negative. They're effectively chapter after chapter of judgment and destruction. And this relentless picture of judgment is all the more striking because we've read such a large chunk in one go. And if you've been here in recent weeks, we have had a diet of judgment really since the beginning of the book of Isaiah. At this point, you might have preferred it if we'd carefully selected some of the more well-known, positive bits of Isaiah on which to speak. Isaiah 9, for example, and the promise of a child being born who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or maybe Isaiah 53, and reflect on the one who was pierced for our transgressions. You know, that would be a bit more encouraging us, wouldn't it? But our commitment to reading Isaiah as it was written, chapter by chapter, prevents us avoiding sections such as what we just read. We just don't get to pick and choose which chapters to explain. And it's not just that these chapters uh, such as these can seem so negative. 
they can quite frankly cause some embarrassment. After all, it is God who is bringing about this destruction. And that just doesn't sit comfortably with some people. Indeed, it might not fit comfortably with you. God bringing about all this destruction. Is that really how we want to think about God? It's distasteful, it's primitive, it's immoral, just not nice. Yet, our commitment to reading Isaiah as it was written chapter by chapter means we can't cover these bits up. We've got to engage with them. Today's a good day to engage with this concern because it's in today's chapters that the scenes of God's destructive judgment are at their most graphic in the book of Isaiah. If you've been following this series on Isaiah in the past few weeks, you will recall that in chapter 13, Isaiah begins a series of oracles or pronouncements against different nations. And there are 10 such oracles altogether. They began in chapter 13 with the first oracle that was against Babylon. And they conclude in chapter 23 with the final 10th oracle that was against Tyre. And it's interesting to note that Babylon, that is first, is in the east. And Tyre, that is last, is in the west. So that Babylon and Tyre are like two marker posts that represent the extremities of everything in between. By implication, God is addressing these oracles to the whole world. And so it's no surprise in chapter 24 that we have a picture of the whole earth being judged by God. It functions as something of a, a culmination to this whole section of God's destructive judgment. Here all the nations of the world are gathered up into a single whole. No longer is it Babylon uh, of Damascus or Tyre being confronted by God. Now it is the earth itself which stands before the judgment of God. Turn with me to it, Isaiah chapter 24, and have a look at um, the first few verses. Because in chapter 24, verses 1 to 3, we see the universal scope of God's judgment. I mean, there will be no escape. Priests, people, masters, slaves, mistresses, maids, sellers, buyers, borrowers, lenders, debtors, creditors. Verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. This is what the future actually involves. Universal judgment by God. And its devastating effects are piled up in verses 4 to 13. So if you have a look on to verse 8 to get um, a flavour. Verse 8, the mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up. 
so that no one can enter. I mean, it's a very dramatic picture of festivities being stilled and the noise of the party is stopping as the city is left in ruins. Instead of a happening, vibrant metropolis, the earth city lays desolate. And then in verse 18, it says, He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundation of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. These verses bring the most appalling picture of total obliteration. And they're regarded as among the most terrifying verses in the whole of Isaiah. What are we supposed to do with that? I mean, this is as graphic as it gets. And God is the one who's doing it. At this point, you may have spotted that it's not all doom and gloom in this chapter. Have a look back at uh, verse uh, 6, chapter 24, verse 6. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. In amongst all the destruction, a few are left. There is a remnant. And in verse 14, we learn that uh, this very few raise their voices. In the midst of a judgment, there are those who are singing glory to God. Now, it's in the following two chapters, chapters 25 and 26, that we're told why this people is praising God. What reason do they have for praising God? Let's pick it up, 25 verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. The surprise here is that they're singing for joy about the destructive judgment of God. They're singing for joy because God has made the earth city a heap of rubble. How can anyone be glad about this kind of destruction? People tend to be happy with the idea of being glad about positive things such as salvation and an end to death and suffering and that sort of thing. But to be glad about destruction, that tends not to be an acceptable idea today. Yet here is a people who sing for joy about such destruction. Why? Well, it's at this point 
it will be helpful for us to recall the events surrounding Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the created order is established. God, Adam and Eve, the rest of creation. And we're not bringing to mind here the order in which the things came about. Rather, we're talking about how God created the world to work. It's an order of rule. God rules over Adam and Eve, who rule over the rest of creation. Now in Genesis 3, the created order is turned upside down. God, Adam and Eve, the rest of creation, is now looking a lot more like the rest of creation, Adam and Eve, and God. And that's because Adam and Eve are now listening to what the serpent says to them. And when they're called to account by God, well, they blame him. The consequence for humans' actions is God's judgment, seen in Genesis chapter 3 in terms of curse, banishment, and death. But in Genesis 3.15, there is a sign of hope. God gives a promise that an offspring of Eve will crush the serpent's head. Now this crushing is seen to be a good thing because the serpent is a liar and a murderer and opposed to God's rule. And we're led to expect that the crushing of the serpent will lead to the restoring of the created order. Now, as Adam and Eve have children and the people on the earth multiply and spread to fill the earth, so sin spreads to the point where the whole world is characterised by its rebellion against God. And it raises the question of what will it look like for God to keep his promise to the serpent crusher? What will it look like for God to destroy that which is opposed to him and restore the created order. And it's when we get to chapters like Isaiah 24 that we get something of the answer. The destructive judgment of God in Isaiah 24 is God crushing his enemies and restoring his rule. Just look with me how the chapter ends. Isaiah 24, verse 21. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in the pit. They will be shut up in a prison and after many days they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before his elders. You see, what is the goal of the destructive judgment? The glorious reign of God. He will gather a people among whom he will reign. Well, we began by observing that God's judgments can seem distasteful. Yeah, reading the book of Isaiah the way that we are, we're not permitted to cover it up. We've seen that there are people described in the Bible who are actually glad about the destruction that God will bring. 
And although initially that might have come as a surprise, it actually makes perfect sense when we understand that this destruction represents the victory and triumph of God as he restores the created order. Now we could finish by reflecting on how God's will is not centred on you or I, but on vindicating his word. God will achieve his creation purpose for the world. And that will be seen in the destruction of his enemies and the restoration of his created order. And those whose highest concern is that God's will be done will rejoice when that happens. Of course they will. But I want us instead to consider for a moment how we think about our salvation. Supposing that we said that salvation is about the forgiveness of sins. Is that adequate? At this point, we need to bear in mind that the problem of sin is not one-dimensional. There are a number of dimensions to the problem of sin. So, there is the problem of sin with respect to God. Sin is first and foremost an offence against God. And because of God's word in Genesis 2.17, the penalty for sin is death. Then there is the problem of sin with respect to us as individuals. Sin leaves, us, sin leaves fallen humanity in an impossibly difficult position as we continue to assert independence from God without any sense of guilt. And there is a problem of sin with respect to our enemies. The Bible talks about Satan exercising a power amongst humanity. So that sin doesn't just separate us from God, it leaves us vulnerable to the malice of another. You notice that there are a number of dimensions to the problem of sin. Now this is important because Jesus claims to provide a complete salvation. One that deals comprehensively with all the dimensions of the sin problem. Salvation that only deals with one aspect of the problem is lacking. And wonderfully, we find that the salvation that God provides does deal comprehensively with all the dimensions of the problem of sin. And in particular, Isaiah 24 anticipates God's triumph and victory over his enemies. And he does that not just for his name's sake, but for the sake and care and protection of his people. And part of our salvation is to enjoy that triumph and victory with him. Let me pray and then I'll open it up to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time this morning to reflect on these chapters of Isaiah. And although on first read they are full of your destructive judgments, as we place them 
in uh, redemptive history and your unfolding plan, we see how they relate to you uh, restoring your created order. We thank you that uh, you have a plan to um, redeem your world. And we thank you that that is a complete plan that deals with every aspect of the problem of sin. And we thank you now as we uh, look back at these uh, words of Isaiah and how they anticipate what would be required in order for you to save a people who will dwell with you under your rule. Uh, we thank you how they have found fulfillment in your son. And we thank you that we can enter the kingdom of heaven, that that is now arrived. And we can look forward to its consummation where we will see it in its fullness. And thank you that that is a cause of great joy for us as we share in your purposes uh, to uh, fulfill your creation plan. Amen. Okay, now is your opportunity if you want to ask any questions or make any comments. Yes, you're going to ask me about Babylon. Uh, no, 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 okay, yeah. Interesting, yes. So let me just um, repeat that question for the um, recording. I'm just going to let me read from Isaiah 22, verse 20. It says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father of the inhabitants of Jerusalem to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. And the question you're thinking like seems quite significant language. So is that introducing the suffering servant, that kind of thing? Interesting. Okay, um, I might need, let me start with a, a more general comment because I can't remember precisely what the commentator said about this uh, verse and then we'll, we'll see what happens, we'll go from there and I might need to get back to you. One of the things that's interesting in the book of, um, not the book of Isaiah, but just the Old Testament itself, is that it creates a number of expectations about one who will come. Um, and interestingly, they're very varied in terms of um, not only who that person will be, because you get something like Genesis 3.15, where 
the expectation is that one is going to be an offspring of Eve, is going to be human and crush the serpent. Then you get other expectations like, I don't know, Psalm 110, where it's one whom David will call Lord. And you think, actually, this is, this is bigger than just another Messiah. This is, this is someone whom David will, will call Lord. And then you're left thinking, well, what, what other category is left for him? And also, you've just got general expectations like if the creation needs to be recreated, then we actually need the creator to come and restore his creation. So basically, as we read the Old Testament, we have a number of expectations of, um, of one who will come, who will be both human divine, who will do um, a number of things. Now, I think the way that it comes to get, and we've already seen that in Isaiah. So, for example, in Isaiah, we've got the Emmanuel child. We've got the, the child born in Isaiah 9. You mentioned the suffering servants. And so what we've got is when we get to Jesus, we find that all of those expectations are met in him. So if you imagine sort of a diagram, you've got these lines from the Old Testament of the expectations of ones that will come and do various things. But all of those are um, fulfilled in the person Jesus Christ. He, he sort of unites everything. He brings it all together. And so I think that's helpful because... Um, it's not until we get to Jesus that he brings it all together. So when we're reading about these different expectations of one as we go through, it's not necessarily obvious that these are all the same thing, the same person. But actually, when we look back, we see that all those expectations are met. And actually, they need to be met because it goes back to that whole idea that um, uh, there is a Jesus' salvation is comprehensive. And therefore, you can't leave any sort of stone unturned, as it were. It needs to be um, complete and fulfill every aspect. So that's a more general comment. Um, I can't, I'm not going to say much more because it would just be a waste of our time, but I'll, I'll get back to you on the details here. One other interesting detail about verse 22 is the fact that on his shoulder is the key of the house of David. And that's obviously super significant because it's, um, it shows you that the hope of Israel is from the house of David. That's where the promise was made to Samuel 7. Um, so is that okay for now? But I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll look up that a bit more. Anybody else? Yes, Timothy.
Yeah, interesting. So you're thinking, just for the recording, uh, does God need all this judgment? Uh, could the people, you know, sort themselves out? That sort of thing. Is it actually necessary that he goes to this extent? Is that what you're... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... Interesting. Well, the judgment goes back to Genesis 2. Because in Genesis chapter 2, in fact, it's just worth, um, if you've not seen it before, in Genesis chapter 2, um, verse 17, if I just pick it up from verse 15, Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here, God gives his word that if they eat from the tree, they will die. That will be the judgment. So it's introducing the idea that sin has a penalty, and the penalty for sin is death. Now, one thing that we know about God from Genesis chapter 1 is that he keeps his word. He just speaks. Let there be light, there was light. Let the waters teem living creatures, and it was so. And so he's given his word that sin results in death. Now, it's quite interesting just to think about that, because obviously Adam and Eve don't die. They're banished from the garden. There are consequences for their disobedience and rebellion against God, but they don't die. But yet God's given his word that you will die. And so right from the beginning of the Bible, there is a certain tension that's set up, because God said the penalty for sin is death, Yet, at the same time, God's got a purpose for creation. You know, he, he, he intends for humanity to multiply, to fill the earth, and for him to dwell, for him to be their God, them to be his people. And so you kind of think you've got both God's creation purpose, which is unthinkable that that would just come to ruin, but then you've also got his word of judgment on sin. Now, Isaiah doesn't... Well, actually, it does, but in, we've looked at, we're only looking at part of the um, what is required, and that is the fact that the enemies of God will be judged, because God has given his word. It's as old as Genesis 2.17. Uh, Genesis 2.17, you can't go back on his word, because then you've got, well, you can't, because God doesn't go back on his word, but if you, if, even if he did, it would be unthinkable, because... Or where does that leave any other words that he's spoken? But we can go further than that because obviously we we live this side of the of the cross, and there you see actually that the the judgment of God is taken by Jesus Christ on the cross. So when he dies, he doesn't deserve to die because he's done nothing wrong, but he takes the punishment of his people on himself and takes that penalty. And that's why there's really, you know, it's like you guys are learning um, at the CU two ways to live. Because either we can 
submit to um, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and rely on his death and resurrection and then be forgiven and have eternal life because the penalty has been paid by him on the cross. Or we continue in our rebellion and autonomy and that's heading for final judgment and condemnation by God. But that will need to happen because God can't let that go on forever because it compromises his creation purpose where his perfect people will dwell with him in new heaven and new earth. So in that sense, this this has to happen um, for God to vindicate himself and, and the word of judgment that he's uh, that he's spoken. Which is interesting because it also goes back to, you know, I started slightly provocatively with, do we sing about God's judgment? But we sing about it all the time. When we sing about the cross, we're singing about his judgment that he took in our place. Um, so, is that okay? Tell you what, the two longer questions, let's uh, leave it there, but let's continue to chat later on. We're going to sing uh, now. Uh, chosen this song particularly because this song celebrates the finished work of um, uh, Christ. So let's stand and sing. Yes, finished in the side eyes.